Well, good morning, everybody, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in week two of a series that we've called The Story of Us, and for eight weeks leading up to Easter, I'm explaining the most significant ideas, the foundational building blocks of, of understanding the New Testament and, and what it means. And, and as I've said all along, um, that is according to me, which means uh, you may have some other ones and I could have missed a few, um, as well as this could have been like a 150-week series, but that is just too long for us to have a series. So we're doing eight. Um, and we've also, along with that, invited you to read the New Testament for yourselves. And based on the book sales, which apparently we have a runaway bestseller on our hands, friends, because we ran out again last week. We now have 850 of these things in circulation. But fear not, I called Zondervan's. The red phone rang, and we have 100 more. So if you didn't get one yet, a special copy of the New Testament. We also have a bookmark with a reading plan. Um, and if you want to jump in, we're starting week two, and you can jump in and start with us, and you can catch up later. It's about 10 pages a day, and a whole bunch of you I've run into over the weeks, and you've said, oh, man, it's really actually doable as long as I actually do it which is kind of how that goes, right? Um, some of you went, oh no, I missed the first week. Again, fear not, uh, just jump to week two, or if you're really hardcore, you can do 20 pages a day, and then in a week, you would be all caught up. So uh, last week, we began with the first foundational idea that I think is so critical to understand as you start to read the New Testament, and it was basically that without a resurrection, there would be no New Testament. We talked about how Jesus had these followers who believed he was God's son, who believed he was the Messiah. He, they believed he was the savior. And then they watched as this man who they had such high expectations for was nailed to a cross and brutally murdered. And we made the observation there were no Christians at the cross because there were these group of people who were following Jesus who believed things about him. But then when he died on the cross, they stopped believing because sons of God can't be crucified. Messiahs can't die, at least not like that. And so had there been no resurrection, there would have been no New Testament. But then three days later, something unexplainable yet undeniable happened. And Jesus came face to face with those followers again. And then they told the world. And that's why we have a New Testament to read at all. That's the first idea. If you missed the talk, um, I would encourage you to catch up on our website, keystonecc.org. And just to give you fair warning, the camera didn't make the move when we shifted the room. So you only see this side of my face, which I'm told is my better side anyway. So that, you know, that, or, or that one person said, well, you don't have a good side, so don't worry about it. So I was like, that's just so heartwarming. Yeah. So uh, for our conversation today, to get us going, I need to share with you a bit of personal history. I need to take you back to the year 1993. Most of us were alive although not all of us, right? In uh, 1993, I was a student, a sophomore at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I took a class in this building, which is not quite as cool as Hogwarts, but pretty cool nonetheless. Would you like, you know, agree? If you're gonna have deep thoughts and think deep things, you might as well do it in a building that looks like that. It actually never looked that cool when I was there, but some photographer did something fun in Photoshop, I think. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. As a sophomore at the University of Michigan, I enrolled in a philosophy of religion class. And I'll never forget the first time I sat down in that classroom. I looked around and I was surrounded by people from all over the world. So there were people that came from a Hindu background and a Buddhist background and a Muslim background and a Jewish background and a Christian background. There were agnostics, there were atheists, and there were Native Americans. So pretty much every religious tradition I had ever even considered was represented in that space. And we were coming together to talk about religion, not at a Christian school, but at a secular public 
university, and I thought, this is going to be fascinating. And the professor got up in front of the class, kind of wrote his name on the board, and said, hey, just so we're clear, I'm an agnostic, which basically means noncommittal. I don't know what I believe. I just make my business to study the religious traditions of the world. And then he said something that I think he wanted to spark discussion, which he did. He said, you know, aren't all religions fundamentally the same? That was sort of his thesis he wanted to launch into the class. And then he went on to explain there are a lot of things about all the major religions of the world. There are some exceptions, but in general, there are things that are true of all religions. Uh, Religions teach people to love and to serve and to give and to forgive, to move away from selfishness and move towards an others-focused way of doing life. We all had to admit that there are a lot of, you know, fundamentally the same sorts of traditions that, that make up these religions. And so sort of his conclusion was, as we sort of start out, he said, you know, maybe, you know, there, maybe there's a God somewhere, and maybe he's on the top of a mountain, and all these religious paths are sort of getting to the same place in the end. And, and I raised my hand, because I'm that guy, right? Shocking absolutely no one, right? And I said, um, you know, I was really wise at 19. And I said, uh, you know, from my perspective, there is something unique about the Christian tradition. And then everyone else just got really, really quiet, right? And I thought, what did I just do, right? And, and, and I said, um, All of the other religious traditions uh, try to talk about how people down here can get to God up there. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, my understanding of Christianity is that in, in Christianity, the story is that God came down. He made contact, and he brought a clarity that can't happen any other way. And the professor said, well, you know, explain a bit more of your perspective. He said, this was not news to him but maybe to some in the class. And he said, where, where do you get this idea? And I said, well, I get this idea from the New Testament. In fact, um, it's probably, it's throughout the New Testament. You'll see it as you read. But, but one place in particular, I think it's particularly clear, is at the very beginning of one of the accounts of Jesus' life, which I think you start reading maybe next week, it's a gospel called John. And it was written by a guy named John who was the youngest of Jesus' followers, 13, 14, 15 years old when he probably started to follow Jesus. He was with Jesus for three years, And then after the resurrection, he spends the rest of his life telling people what God had done. After the resurrection, John reflects on everything he saw Jesus do, the healings, the teachings, because the resurrection validated everything else Jesus said and did. And so John spent his life telling people about Jesus. He's Towards the end of the first century, he's pastoring a group of churches, seven as best we can tell, in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And John is getting to a spot where he realizes that he's about to exit the stage of this life and he doesn't want his memories of his time with Jesus to be lost. And so he writes an account. And so John, as he's writing his account, wants us to see what's most important to understand right at the very top of his story of Jesus. I'm gonna show you how he begins that account. John's account of Jesus' life begins with these words. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So in this first sentence, John basically says, okay, you know God, and there's this word, and the word and God are are somehow one. Then in the next sentence, he says, he was with God in the beginning. So there's this person called the word. And then John tells us a little bit of his activity. Through him, through this word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the word is with God. The word is God, and then everything is made through the word. And, and so you say, okay, John, that's, that's interesting, but all of that really is a setup to what 
comes next. Because a few verses later, John presents us with the thesis statement for his entire account of Jesus' life. And it was the spot that would have sucked the air out of the room in the ancient world. Because John writes the following after, after this sort of setup. In verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt with us. The eternal word of God who was God and was with God through whom everything was made became flesh and dwelled with us on planet earth. Dirt and sweat and flesh and bones. And then he says, we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus had taught his followers to pray, our Father in heaven. So he says, there's a Father in heaven, but then the Word who was with God and who was God came among us in flesh and blood. And that is a stunning, incredible idea. And again, you'll see it all throughout the New Testament. And so with our time today, uh, that's what John says. I want to just ask a, a really important question. And the question goes like this. Why would God choose to become one of us? There was a strategy in play. He wanted us to know some things and understand some things. There were some things that only Jesus could accomplish. But why would God choose to become one of us? And you should know that in the first century, no one was expecting God to become a human being. No one. In fact, if you look at the first century and what came before it, humans were always trying to become gods. So if you became the leader of a powerful nation like a pharaoh in Egypt or the Roman emperor, you would declare yourself to be God and demand to be worshipped. But the idea that a god would come down was just unprecedented. I mean, some Jewish people were expecting the Messiah or the anointed one to come, but they did not believe that this Messiah or this anointed one would be God in flesh. Nobody expected God to become one of us. Moreover, they really wouldn't expect him to come as a tiny, vulnerable baby born to teenage parents in the armpit of the Roman Empire. If you were going to make up a story about a God becoming man, you would probably have this God come on a bright, sunny day, 75 degrees. Oh, just a moment. Wouldn't that be glorious? Yeah. And he would come and there would be like an earthquake and he would come with a thunderclap on a chariot of fire, right? That's how a God would come to earth as a man. But, but the idea that a God would be born a tiny, vulnerable baby, I mean, it, it's a part of Jesus' story that nobody, nobody would have made up. He's born the son of a carpenter. And then he becomes a carpenter himself. And then he spends, you know, 30 years of his life in his family business. And, and then around age 30, he steps onto the pages of history. So what I want to do um, is I want to share with you a conversation that Jesus had with his first followers that I think helps us see the heart behind why Jesus came, why God came as one of us. And it, it's found in that same account of, of John, of the life of Jesus. And just kind of let me set up the scene for you. Jesus had just told his disciples that he had to leave them, but not, not to worry. And the disciples thought, no, 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 Jesus. Uh, you see, you're our leader, and a lot of the religious establishment doesn't like you. So if you leave, we're going to worry. That's how this is going to work. Uh, there's a lot of emotion in the room, and that leads up to this conversation. Jesus says to his followers, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, to which they would respond, yep, we believe in God. He says, you believe, believe also in me. And if you're ever with somebody who says to you, you believe in God, that's fantastic. You need to believe in me just like you believe in God. I would suggest you leave the room because that person is either crazy or it's true. There really isn't 
a middle ground. And fortunately, John didn't get up and leave. He told Jesus, okay, slow down. I got to write this, some stuff down, taking notes here for later. Um, that was a joke. It never works. I don't know why. I've tried that joke three or four times. It never works. I should leave it, but I'll try it again next time. <laughs> okay, uh, next verse. Uh, he's, Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. And you may have grown up with a translation that said many mansions, but it's probably rooms. And my father's house has many rooms. And if it were not so, I would, um, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if you're a disciple, you're like, okay, wait, he's talking about going again. This is a bad idea. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And then he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Now just pause for a second. I think some of us this week as we were reading the New Testament had a moment where we thought, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Was that you? A couple different times maybe? You're like, that doesn't make any sense. In this moment, the disciples were feeling exactly what you and I felt. I love that John records these moments for us because they were completely confused. They're like, okay, Jesus, wait, you're leaving, but you're coming back. And when you come back, you're going to take us to where you were before you came back. What? And he says, you know, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And, and Thomas, one of the followers of Jesus who's there, we looked at some of Thomas's story last week. But Thomas has the question that, that I think we all would have. He says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Like, okay, boss, we know you know what you're talking about. But just so we're clear, the rest of us are not following. And then you said we shouldn't worry because you'll come back and you should, we don't need to worry because we know the way, but we don't know the way. So can you help us out here? And Jesus answered, he said, uh, I am the way, so you do know the way, and the truth, and the life. And then he said, no one comes to the Father, talking about Heavenly Father, no one comes to the Father except through me. And friends, that is one of the most offensive things Jesus ever said, because he claims to be the only way for any human being to come to peace with God. And by the way, this, this verse also explains something pretty cool. When Jesus died, um, his followers weren't initially called Christians. That comes later. Uh, if, in fact, uh, Christian, when it surfaced, was like a derogatory term, kind of like redneck, okay? But initially, if you said, what did the followers of Jesus call themselves? They called themselves the people of the way because of what Jesus says right here. He says, I am the way. I am the embodiment of the life you were designed to live. So they were people of the way. They were people who followed the way of life that Jesus modeled and Jesus prescribed. And then as Jesus continues, he actually says something even more offensive. So we're just on a roll. Uh, then he says this, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. And I mean, if I'm there and I'm a disciple, I'm like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa Jesus, hold on. Okay, the miracles, unprecedented, very cool. You're very charismatic. People like you, okay? Some of your teaching's kind of weird. I think they might come for the miracles, not the teaching. I'm just saying, okay? But, but now we're, we're entering crazy time. If you really know me, you'll know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I think the disciples were just stunned. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this what this conversation is really about? And are you really saying what I think you're saying? And so another disciple, Philip, tries, decides to stop him because he really wants to understand. So Philip like raises his hand and he says something that I think if we're honest, all of us have wanted to say at one point or another in life. 
Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Like, I know you just talked about coming and going and how you are the way, and you said, we know the way, and that, that's kind of confusing, but, you know, we could just cut through the fog, just, just show us the Father. Show us what Father God, and, and, and that'll be enough for us. And I think at some point in our lives, we've all wanted to know for certain that there was a God. We, we wanted something to happen. We wanted to see something, preferably not at night when we were alone in our bedrooms, because that might be a little freaky, right? But, but we've all had that thought like, okay, whatever I'm going through, I don't even know that I need to be rescued from the situation, but if I just knew there was a God who knew my name and who was for me, that would be enough. And that's what Philip, that's what Philip is trying to get after. So he says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Here's what Jesus responds. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? And I think at this point, the disciples are looking at each other going, is he saying what it sounds like he's saying? Jesus continues, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And the words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. In, in other words, if you want to know what God would say, listen to me. If you want to know about what sorts of things in, in, in the human experience that God would oppose, watch me. If you want to know what God thinks about a specific issue, ask me. If you want to know how God would respond to injustice, watch what I do when I come to a spot where I encounter injustice. Because you'll never get a better clue about what God is like than by watching me. And this is so, so important for us to get our heads and our hearts around that, that God sent Jesus. Jesus came as one of us to show us what God is like. He wants you and I to know him on a personal level so he wasn't just content to send information. It had to be personal, so God came among us personally. And as much as possible, he accommodated himself to our finite capacity because he loves us and he wants us to know. He doesn't want us to guess. He doesn't want us to wonder, which brings us to our big idea for today. And this is the thing that separates Jesus from every other religious leader and every other religious tradition because Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation for God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation for God. And, and the two observations couldn't be any more different. It's so strong when you read it through the New Testament. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe fame, at one point in a book called Mere Christianity says, there's only really three options when it comes to Jesus. Either he's Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Those are, those are your only three options. Like people that try to say, oh, he's a great teacher. Well, he's a great teacher who claimed to be God in flesh. So it's really, really a significant idea to wrestle down that Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation for God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation for God. He comes along and says, I've come to explain the Father to you. Listen to me, watch what I do. You will never get any closer to God than me. And it means for all of us that the best opportunity to understand the heart of our creator is to watch Jesus and to listen to Jesus and to see how Jesus interacts with broken people, especially if we're at a spot where we're broken and we wonder, I wonder how God feels about somebody who's at the rock bottom, who doesn't know where to go, who doesn't know what to turn next. There are stories that you'll read in the New Testament that, that are in those moments and, and those moments will give you hope because 
Jesus came to show us the heart of the Father. Now, here's, what our, here's our challenge when it comes to what Jesus said. Human beings have a very natural tendency to try to figure God out by looking in all the wrong places. And what I want to do is just walk you through four of them really quickly. The first place I would argue that we look is circumstances. So we look at our circumstances to try to discern what God is like. So if something good happens, then we say, ah, God is being good to me. And if something bad happens, we think, okay, God has rejected me or turned his back on me or doesn't care about me or doesn't love me. The problem with looking at circumstances to understand God is that we are really bad at interpreting circumstances. Uh, l- let me explain. A few years back, I had a friend. Uh, he had a great job. His job was eliminated, couldn't find work, ended up moving back home with mom and dad. Mid-30s, not a great scenario, at least from that perspective. And he wondered, he's like, I felt like I've been faithful in my job. I can't believe God would let something like this happen. A few months after he moved back home, he's still looking for a job. Life is hard. His dad comes down with a terrible, debilitating illness. And all of a sudden, he realizes that the timing of his job loss could not have been better in the end. But but in the moment, he interpreted his circumstance one way, but then more information enters his story, and he realizes that what felt like a curse was actually a blessing. Or just imagine with me a 17-year-old girl who comes in and she goes to youth group and she does the church thing and she prays and she's been praying because spring is coming. It really is, even though it doesn't look like it, right? And and she's praying that, that this one guy would ask her to prom because he is her perfect guy. And so he's praying and a prom is coming and she finds out at school that he's asked someone else. And so she comes back and thinks, God must not love me. God must not care. She tells her mom this. And mom looks back and says, that's fascinating because I was praying that he wouldn't ask you. (laughs) So I think God is faithful and answers prayer, even though you don't. See, we're really bad at interpreting circumstances, but that's very natural. The good news is we don't have to. We can watch Jesus to see what God is like. Second place we tend to look is our religious traditions. And if you grew up in church, you were taught some things about God and you also caught some ideas about God. I mean, if you grew up You know, in a Baptist vein, you learn that God loved Bible memorization and didn't like dancing so much, right? Or or if you grew up like Christian Reformed and like Jenison, let's say you learn that God did not want you to wash your car on Sunday, right? But he really liked potlucks, okay? I mean, that you know, you just pick up these things. And and many of us grew up with these things and we blend them together and we come up with this view of God. But the problem with all religious traditions, including mine, is simply this. Religious traditions, and I wrote this down because it's kind of fun systematize, customize, emphasize, and fossilize. You're all like, yeah, the fossilized part, got it, right. So religious traditions, systematize, customize, emphasize, and fossilize. This isn't all bad. Uh, You know, I love systematic things because religious systems need answers. But the problem is that life keeps asking questions. And if a question happens that is outside of the grid that your religious tradition handed you, you can find yourself really frustrated. I remember when I read the biography of Steve Jobs, founder of Apple by Walter Brueggemann, and in that account of Steve Jobs' life, uh, religion came up in Walter Brueggemann's conversations with Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs recalled the time, uh, 1968, he was in uh, a class, a teenager growing up in church, and he brought with him a copy of Life magazine from 1968 that showed a picture of starving children on the cover. And Steve Jobs, you know, raised his hand at one point in the class and asked the person leading the class, probably some well-meaning elder or church leader type person, and just said, does God know about this? And the response was, yeah, God knows about everything. That, that's in the box. And he said, well, why doesn't God do something about this? 
And the response was something like, you know, who are we to ask such questions? And Steve Jobs, as a man dying of a debilitating disease, in his mind when he's asked about faith, goes back to 1968 and says, it was there in that classroom that I thought, I can't do this. And he walked away from faith. That's the problem with trying to understand God through our religious traditions. It can be helpful, but it's limited. Fortunately, there's a better way. It's, it's Jesus. Now, the third place that people tend to look naturally for God is within, right? And this is the, where, where you sit and you meditate and you pray, and, th- and this is wonderful. And a lot of us have this as a part of our experience of faith. Um, but the problem is that when you look within, you're limited to what is within, And you only get so far because God is bigger than whatever is within you. So it's not that it's a bad idea. It's just you have to acknowledge that it's limited. Moreover, what's within you as a 16-year-old is a little different than what's within you as a 65-year-old or a 75-year-old. So so it's limited. Uh, The final place that we tend to look is nature. We look to understand God through nature, and that's a wonderful thing to do. But again, it's limited. I always say, like, if you want to find God and know what God is like by watching nature, it's a little bit like flying in a jumbo jet over a large city like New York or Chicago or Sydney from the air, on a, especially on a beautiful sunny day. It, it's a beautiful thing. But then when you get down on street level, you start to realize that it's kind of dirty and it's kind of dangerous in places. And, and nature is similar. As long as we stay back far enough, nature is captivating. But when you get in close enough, you start to realize that nature is all about survival of the fittest. And if you're not the fittest and you're not the strongest, you're in a lot of trouble. There's no grace in nature. There's no forgiveness in nature. So again, looking to understand God through creation is is great, except it's limited. Fortunately, Fortunately, God has come among us because he wants us to know what he is like. And what this means, friends, is that if we move past Jesus, we're moving away from God. And if we stop short of Jesus, we stop short of insights about God that really can help us. And so what I want to do um, is, is give you a little homework as you continue to read, or if you're joining us for the first time, as you start to read with us uh, the New Testament of the Bible. As you read the New Testament of the Bible and you read about Jesus, just a simple question, what can we learn about the Father by watching the Son? What can we learn about God the Father by watching God the Son? And I think what you're going to find is beautiful, and I think what you're going to find is captivating, and I think what you're going to find is disruptive, especially if what Jesus models is different than the picture you hold. And and I would just encourage you to allow that picture to be reshaped by understanding a bit more who Jesus is. God became one of us so that we would know his heart. As we close, uh, I want to read you a story, a short story written by Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. So if if people ask you later, what did you talk about in church? Well, we read some Kierkegaard. (laughs) Kind of sounds like really smart. Yeah. Um, Years ago, I was in a class, and this story was read, and it so captured me because I think it so captures God's heart behind why he came, so that we would know what he was like, but even that we would know that he was love. So we'll put the words up on the screen. I'll just read it to you, and then I'll close this in prayer. It goes like this. It's called The King and the Maiden. If you like it, you can find it on the Google. You can find everything on the Google, right? Here we go. He says, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden, and the king was like no other king. 
Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet, this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. But if he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? I mean, she would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or, or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know for sure? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort, waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He didn't want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let share love, shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. Says the king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. This was not just a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love and to win hers. And John writes, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he writes, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you stand? And I'll close us in prayer. All right. Heavenly Father, Words fall short in moments like these, but we just say thank you. Thank you, you that you did not choose to remain distant and leave us wondering, but you came among us to bring clarity, to demonstrate love, to bring hope, to bring purpose, to bring salvation. I pray this week as we continue to read your story, these beautiful accounts of what has happened among us, that, that your love would burn through the fog of confusion that we so often carry as we try to pursue you and that we might see you as a heavenly father willing to do whatever it took to communicate your love. I ask for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.